Amen. That is our desire, to praise the Lord of living waters. Go ahead and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 12, uh, verses 9 through 21 is where we will be reading today. And today we get to finish a three-part series that I began over a month ago now uh, called Basic Christianity. And if you remember kind of the, the foundation sermon, it's, it's been working through Romans chapter 12, and the foundation sermon was Romans 12, 1 through 2, where we talked about how God desires that we not just be saved and then sit, but that we be saved and then we be transformed into the image and likeness of His Son. And we are called to participate with God in that process by the renewing of our minds. That God has given us minds, and at first when we're saved, they're still set on earthly things. But we need our minds to be reprogrammed, reoriented to the truth of God and His goodness towards us. And so that is what we're called to do. And we do that by spending time in His Word and spending time in prayer with Him. We can have our minds renewed by God. And so this week, we'll be looking at the life-changing love of God in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. And what we will see together are the results of that renewed mind. If we truly understand... If we truly see God for who He is, if we truly get and grasp His goodness to us, we will be changed. It is not optional. And so we're going to look at that together today. Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. If you would please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading verses 9 through 21 together. The Word of the Lord says this, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we come now, and Father, as we open up your word, and as we examine our lives, and we um, consider what you would have to say to us today, Father, we ask now that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have to say to us. Lord, as we look at a life-changing love, God, may we truly ask, have we been changed by you? Lord, help us to uh, not just be hearers of your word, but be doers. Help us to love one another and love our enemies. We thank you for this time. We pray that you would use it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, as... um, as many of you may know, I have a, a six-year-old daughter named Audrey, and uh, right after we moved here, 
she was about three years old at the time, we had the opportunity to take Audrey to Disneyland. And so she's about three and a half or so. And I remember, you know, we wanted to do the kind of the whole Disney experience. And so we thought, well, we're going we're gonna to do the Kodak moment and we're going to get the cameras out and we're going to tell Audrey we're going to Disney and we're going to record it and it's going to be great. And so we got our camera out and we, we said, we said, hey, Audrey, guess what? We're going to Disney. And she kind of looked at us and she said, okay. <laughs> and, and so that was not really the Kodak moment that we were hoping for. We looked at, at her and we said, well, don't you get it? It's going to be so fun. And she said, okay, sure. You know, and... And so we spent the next several months trying to convince her how, how exciting this was going to be, uh, that we had this opportunity to go to Disney World. And um, I remember she really just still didn't get it most of the time until we were on the monorail. We're on the monorail, and we're riding into Disney World. And there's, I'll never forget kind of this corner where you come around the corner, and you can see Cinderella's castle off in the distance. And we're in there with tons of other people, you know, kind of packed in there like sardines. And all of a sudden some kid lets out this blood-curdling scream, Cinderella's castle! And I remember thinking, man, who in the world? Whose kid is that? They need to get that kid under control. And I turn around, oh, that's my kid, right? (laughs) That's mine. And so, but here's the deal. After I got over my initial embarrassment, I realized um, that I I was actually very excited because here's the deal. She got it. She saw it. She saw what it, what was really waiting for and how good it was. And it changed the, her response, right? It changed her. And here's what I want to say to you today, friends. This is the, the main point. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. God's love for us is life-changing, okay? And if we have not been changed by that love, then it may be possible then that we don't actually know that love the way that we're called to, okay? God's love for us is a life-changing, earth-shattering kind of love, and so today I want us to look then together at what does God have for us to see in Romans 9 uh, through 21. And I want us just to look at verse 9 to begin. There's a command that we are given, a command that we are given that says this, Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. The Greek word for love there is the word agape. And you've probably heard this many times about the agape Love of God. It is an, an incredibly loaded term. It's a term that, that implies God's unconditional love towards us. It is an all consuming, unconditional kind of love. It is not like other loves. It is not like sexual love or brotherly love or some of the other terms that the Greek language has for love to express this idea of love. It is to communicate an idea of selfless, self sacrificing, radical love. And so we have this command, let love be genuine. Uh, The actual Greek says this, let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. And that's important because every action, there's a big long list as we've read together, right? There's this big long list of actions here. And what is, is interesting is that every action listed can be performed, can be acted without love. It can be hypocritical. You see, this is actually an incredibly tough command because we don't always feel loving, right? We don't always feel loving. And so there's, there's a conundrum then as Christians. There's a conundrum that we find ourselves in. Either A, I can act loving when I don't really feel loving, which is hypocrisy. Or B, I can work out the selfish things that are in my heart. 
I can do the things that I want to do, but then I'm in rebellion to the Lord, right? And so there's this conundrum. We need God's love, and we do not have it in us to be genuine lovers, to be genuine agape givers every single day. Not only that, besides this conundrum of hypocrisy, there's, there's another problem here for us. And I want to illustrate it this way. I know it's daylight savings time today, so what I'd like to do is have a little audience participation. All right? So if you can help me this morning, if this is true of you, if you would raise your hand. But who here today has ever been hurt or wounded by someone that they love? Ought to be every hand in the building, right? Yeah. And so here's the reality that we have to face, and this is a problem, I think, for many of us in many ways, that if we give away love, genuine agape-type love, we will be wounded. And there's a cost associated with that. Am I willing to pay that price? In the book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give, it, give your heart to no one. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. You see, the great irony of love, this selfless, genuine love-giving is this, that self-preservation leads to self-suffocation. Self-preservation leads to a spiritual suffocation of our souls. Because here's the, the reality. Oftentimes we walk around, and we go to church, and we wear a mask. And I go to work, and I wear a different mask. And I go home, and I wear a different mask. And we, we wear these masks to protect us, right? Because we all know, we've learned a very hard lesson early in life, oftentimes on kindergarten playgrounds. And there's a lie that is told to us on those playgrounds, but we get perhaps hurt or injured by some of our little friends on those playgrounds. And we learn a little rhyme that says something like this, and I want you to help me finish it. It says, sticks and stones may break my bones, but we all know it. That's a lie, right? There's nothing. There's a few things that have been said that are more untrue than that. Words have the power to give life, and words have the power to wound and wound deeply. And so we learn from a very early age, if I let people see the real me, I may have to deal with hurtful words. I may get wounded, and so I'm going to wear a mask. But the command that Jesus gives us is to let love be genuine. And here's the, the other irony of that. What each of us truly needs in this life, what each of us truly craves, is to be truly known and truly loved. One of the great ironies of that is, is as, a, as a pastor and a counselor, I get to uh, talk with people, and there are people that will come into my office and they will say something like this, I am sad today, I'm depressed, and I'm hurting because no one really knows the real me. You see, and so we wear these masks to protect ourselves, but even as we do, we wall ourselves off and we suffocate because God has designed us and created us to live in authentic, genuine relationships, firstly with himself and secondly with one another. And so we must obey this command because it is the way that we are wired. Love must be genuine. 
In Matthew 16, 25, Jesus said, whoever, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So God's immeasurable love for us teaches us then how to love others authentically, how to love others genuinely, and in doing so, actually find true life. That is the beauty of this agape love. And the question then that I would ask you today is, how are you doing loving the people that God has placed in your life? The way that that you can tell how well you are living inside of this agape love is just look to your family, look to your coworkers, and ask yourself, how well am I doing loving the people that God has entrusted to me? Is there an authenticity there? Is there a genuineness there? Is there an openness there? So we see the importance of this first and primary command that really informs the rest of what we're about to, to kind of work through together, this idea of this agape love. The next thing that I'd like us to see together is that there are kind of two types of agape love, two types. And, and I, not so much two types as more as, as it is two aspects of the same idea. We've all seen American quarters, right? And so on one side of the quarter, it's an interesting thing. The quarter itself is a one. It's one unit, right? It's one item, one entity. But if you flip it, it looks very different on either side. And if you were not familiar with the coins, if you're from another country, you could say, see one side and say, well, that's a different coin than this coin, right? And the same, I think, is true with this idea of agape love. There are two parts that are absolutely crucial. They are integrated. You cannot have one without the other. But their expression is different. And that's what we see here in this passage. Within this list, there are different commands and actions, a great number of those uh, that are listed out for us. But either, either, either of these actions, any of these actions can fit either under love for God or love from God. Love for God or love from God. So I'd like us to look then at this idea of a holy love for God. In Matthew 20, 22, verse 37, Jesus um, is asked a question. The question is, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? To which he replies what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Correct? So this is what we are called to do. We are called and commanded by God to have a holy love for God. And I want to just show you very quickly, if you'll hold your finger in Romans chapter uh, 12, we're going to do a little flipping today, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you'll turn there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to read verses 14 through 15 together. Second Corinthians chapter 5 verses 14 through 15 says this, knowing that he Oh, excuse me, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so the answer is this, why do I abhor evil and cling to what is good, as verse 9 says in Romans chapter 12? Why am I to be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord? Why should I? Rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, and be constant in prayer. What would motivate me to do that? Because that is not easy. In fact, I would dare say these things are impossible. What would motivate me to 
pursue God this way. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for the love of Christ compels us. You see, his love is the reason that we are motivated to change. It's not something in us that we're going to be better versions of ourselves, that we're going to work harder or do more for Jesus. No, we need to understand and see God, just as Audrey saw that castle and it changed her in an instant. We need to see God for who he is. We, once we see his goodness and we see his glory, it will change us in an instant, and we will love him. And these responses of being patient in affliction, rejoicing in hope, serving the Lord, being fervent in spirit. These are things that will come naturally to us, that will flow out of us. And so we need this supernatural, holy love for God. But not only do we need supernatural love for God, we need supernatural love from God. I want to ask you to turn to uh, Romans chapter 5, and this is the last time I'll ask you to flip. But Romans chapter 5, I just want us to see this together. Supernatural love from God. As you're flipping in Romans 12, verses 9 through 21, I'll just share with you some of the commands that were were given. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Show hospitality and give. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Do not be haughty. We have these commands, and I want us to see the source that we have been given to be able to carry out these commands. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because... God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so here's the deal. We do not have it in us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ as we're called to. I don't have it in it in myself to be patient with my family every single day. But what God tells us in Romans chapter 5 verse 5 is that he is willing through the, his Holy Spirit to pour it out into our hearts for us. The simple fact of the matter is that we cannot give away what we do not have. But Jesus has done it for us. Jesus has given us the love that we need. So why do I love one, one another with brotherly affection? Or why do I outdo someone in honor, in showing honor? It's not because they deserve it. It's because Jesus does. Jesus deserves my very best. And so it's not based on someone's performance that I'm going to love them. It's based on what Jesus has done for me, and that's why I'm going to love them. I need to show hospitality and give, give of my things and my possessions, not because of anything that I'm going to try to, to be more generous or I'm going to try to be better, but simply because of this, because Jesus is better than any possession that I could ever have. And so we see then that we do not need to be haughty because God has forgiven me for more than any other person could ever do to me. You see, if I really understand the cross, if I really see the gospel for what it is, that that I was a sinner and an enemy of God, and Jesus Christ came to this earth and died on a cross, and he stood in my place for my sin, not someone else out there, but for me, then suddenly I understand this reality. No one owes me anything because Jesus has forgiven me for more than I can ever imagine. And so we see God's love for us. And here's the key to learning to live with genuine love, and I've already mentioned it. It is focusing on God's great love for you. 
is focusing on God's great love for you. Try to be more loving on your own, and you will be more frustrated than ever before. You'll become impatient and defeated because we cannot do it. But be filled with the love of God, and you will not be able to keep yourself from loving other people well. I go back to this, this verse about God's love being poured out into our hearts. How do you hold water? If you're thirsty and you want to drink, how do you hold water? Is it with clenched fists? No, right? The tighter you squeeze water, the more quickly it runs through your fingers. If we want to receive water, we have to cup our hands and hold it loosely. We have to hold our hands open. And this is true with God's love. It's not something that I'm going to try hard, I'm going to grip my teeth, and I'm going to get through it today. I'm going to show love to somebody. No, Lord, I need you. I need you to, to fill me up with your love, and then help me, Father, to give that away as you've given freely to me. This is what we're called to do. Jesus says that he is the living water, right? He says that anyone who comes to me would never thirst again. I think it's very important for us to realize and to recognize he didn't just say that and mean that that we go to him one time and we get a drink and then we move on and we're never thirsty again. No, no. What's so good about that passage, what's so good about that promise is this, is that Jesus is the living water. He is the fountain that never runs out. And so as my soul is thirsty and as I need his love each and every day that I wake up, I'm able to return to him again and again and again, and always find that he's enough every time. And as I do that, then I am able to be the person of life-changing love that God calls me to be. just want to read to you 1 John three sixteen. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. And then 1 John four nineteen, We love because he first loved us us. If I want God's supernatural, life-changing love, I must reflect on his love. Friend, here's the deal. God sees you, and God knows you, and he loves you anyway. He sees you completely, just as we talked about. We crave that desire, we desire that, that someone would truly see us, truly accept us, and truly love us. The creator of the universe, the one who breathed the stars into being, sees you, He knows you, and he loves you. This is where freedom is found. And so as I understand God's love for me, I realize then that I don't have to justify myself. I don't have to justify myself to some person over here or through my job. I don't have to try to earn success or some sort of standing in the community. I don't have to justify myself to the world around me. I don't even have to justify myself to God because I can't. Jesus did it for me. And when he hung on the cross and he said, it is finished, it really was. It is finished if we know him. And so as we look then, we see that there are these two aspects of agape love. Love for God and then love from God. But not only do we see that we need to be motivated and compelled by love, we have to also understand that love is the standard for our actions as believers. That love will literally filter out our actions worth keeping and the actions that we need to throw away. And here's how. 1 Corinthians 13 is the test. If it is not done in love, whatever the action is, if it is not done in love, we are merely a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I healed the sick. 
I prayed in tongues. I preached the greatest sermon. I changed a thousand diapers in kids' zone. I gave a million dollars. I cooked for hundreds of people. I allowed my body to be burned at the stake. The question is this, friend. Did you do it in love? You see, if it's not done in love, it simply doesn't matter. So here's the question. This week, the things that you said at work to your coworkers, did you do it in love? Yesterday, at home with your family, the way you responded to them and treated them, did you do it in love? Today, when you're getting ready for church and it's daylight savings time and we're running late, it's Sunday morning, the way that you responded to your family members, did you do it in love? This is what should set us apart. This should be the mark for us as believers. Even the way that we get dressed and ready in the morning should look differently because we're doing it in love. It's not just another task. It's not just something else that I've got to go through the motions and I've got to get through the day. No, the creator of the universe loved me and died for me and gave himself for me. So I have joy, I have peace, and I can go through life and show his love to a watching world. This is the standard that we're called to. Not only do we see these these different types of love and how love is the standard, I also want us to see how love must impact our relationships. There's two particular types of relationships that are pointed out in this passage for us. But I want to just go ahead and say this, that it should be, I think, taken for granted or or assumed as we're reading this, that love should impact every relationship that we enter into, right? The love of God should influence and impact all of our relationships. But there are two that are outlined in particular in this passage. Firstly, let's read verses uh, 15 through 16 together. It says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Who is that one another? The one another is other believers, right? There are other Christians that we are supposed to live lives of love with and in front of. And this word harmony, I think, is, is um, a beautiful word. It communicates unity. It communicates oneness. That we're to bear one another's burdens. We're to share one another's joys. Our lives are to sync up together. And I'm not a musician, and I, I don't pretend to be. Uh, but every once in a while, I try to play the guitar. I try to play at the guitar, I should say, probably. But um, one of the, the, I guess, the key ideas in music is this idea or concept of harmony. And Zach could probably do a much better job of explaining this to you than I could. But this idea of harmony is very simply this, that, that as I strum a chord on the guitar or play a chord on the pianos, there are actually different sounds that are being made. There are different notes that are coming out. They're not the same. But as they are played and as they come forth, if I've played the note correctly, the notes agree with one another. They fit And friends, this is what you and I are called to do at Riverview Baptist Church. It's not that we all have to be the exact same. It's not that we have to look the same or talk the same or walk the same. It is that we are each called to be who God has created us and designed us to be. And to be true to that, be genuine, and love the people that God has placed around us. And as we do that, God harmonizes, unifies us, and brings us together for His glory. 
And the world watches, and then the world says, oh, that's different. They may not always agree. They may not always even necessarily like each other. But they're united. They're harmonized. They bear one another's burdens. They weep with those who weep. They laugh with those who laugh. This is what you and I are called to do, friend, together today. So we see other believers. But then the next thing is found, I believe, in verse 16. Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, 17. 17 and following, we'll start there. This is something I'll just say up front. I believe as American Christians, we don't always do this very well. Let's read and see what God has to say to us in verse 17. It says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. God's word says to us here, not only are we to love other believers, we're to love those who are opposed to us. We're to love genuinely those who stand opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is not something that I believe is always present in the American church, but is something that we are called to, that we are not exempt from. On October 2nd, 2006, Charles C. Roberts entered an Amish schoolhouse in Pennsylvania, a single room. And he told the boys, leave. Get out. And he left those little girls and a teacher in the room. And he began to shoot and kill the little girls of that Amish community. Excuse me. And as the father of a daughter, when I think of this, it enrages me. It makes me very angry. But I just want to tell, tell you what the Amish did. The Amish made it a point to take a collection and to give to the killer's family because he had murdered himself. They took a collection and they attended his funeral and they hugged and prayed with his family And they told them that we forgive you, the man who had just murdered their little girls. This is radical, different, life-changing love. Otherworldly kind of love. This is the love that you and I are called to have to a watching world. That we would love our enemies, that we would pray for those who persecute us, that we would look different because God has loved us even when we were enemies of Him. That we would follow His example. Jesus' words on the cross, as He's being literally killed and crucified, as His his nails are being driven through His hands, what did He say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. It is a supernatural love. We are called to find ways to bless those who persecute us. 
our blessings should manifest themselves in, in two tangible ways. One is the most obvious. Yes, we should, we should pray. We should pray for those. We should pray for our enemies. We should bless them verbally. But then secondly, Jesus, when we look at his life, we know he was not just a verbal blessing to the people around him. He was a physical blessing to those around him. He found ways to serve the lowly, to serve even his enemies. And this is what you and I are called to do, to be a blessing to the world around us physically. Let's read verses 17 through 21 just for a moment. I want to reread something. It says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, right here in 18, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's an incredible, incredibly important point. As we consider just very simply this, life is filled with conflict because we live in a fallen world. And there will be times that we disagree, that people are opposed to us. And so what Jesus says to us, what God says to us here in this passage is very simply this, that we cannot control the actions of others, and that's okay, nor should we try to. That is God's role to change people's hearts. It's not ours. But what we are to do is to recognize who we are responsible for. And so I can't change the person over here. I can't change their hearts. But I know this, I'm responsible for my heart. I'm responsible for what is in my heart and what I say and what I allow to come out of my heart. And so if I'm angry, if I'm upset, I need Jesus to change me, to give me a new heart, to remove my bitterness. This is what God calls us to do. And again, Jesus is is our example. Jesus served his enemies for 33 years. Day in, day out. Because of this, we were his enemies. There was not one person on the planet who does not stand opposed to God. There's not one person on the planet who doesn't love themselves more. And Jesus came day after day after day after day for 33 years, and he sacrificially gave of himself. He genuinely loved those around him. This is the agape love that should impact our relationships. But someone may protest Is there not a time to to write someone off? Is there not a time to move forward and, and leave our enemies behind? Is there not a time to avenge ourselves? And let me just say this. I am not a pacifist. I do not believe that we should not defend the defenseless. Because I believe that God does defend the defenseless. But this is not what this passage is talking about. This passage is talking about choosing willfully to take vengeance against our enemies, to hold ourselves in judgment over someone else. And here's the simple answer. No, there's not a time. There is not a time. We are to leave room for God's wrath. Look at verse 18 again. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I am not a hellfire and brimstone preacher, but I am a Bible preacher. And here's what the word of the Lord says to us, and we need to recognize this. The word of the Lord says to us, my wrath is enough. And that's an incredibly scary concept. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. 
Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, there is a serious, holy fury that God has against sin. And rightfully so. And so the reason, then, that I don't have to try to take justice into my own hands, that I don't have to try to avenge myself, is because I can leave room for God's wrath and recognize one way or another, He will work out justice through time. I may not understand how it's all going to come together, but He is more than able. Given God's infinite power and wisdom and our finite perspective, it is always right for us to pray, work for, and love those who oppose us in the gospel. It's always right because of this. Either their sin will be met with the power and love of the cross, and their sin debt will be extinguished. Jesus will have dealt with it on the cross. Or a person's sin debt, and I say this very very carefully, but will be met with the holy wrath of God for all eternity. This is the reality. Justice will be executed one way or another. In the book of Genesis, uh, Abraham faces this scenario. The book of Genesis tells us that the Lord appears to Abraham before he goes to Sodom and Gomorrah, and he discloses to him that I'm going to go down and see if there are any righteous men in the city before I destroy it. And so then Abraham has a question that should burn in our minds. He says, will not the judge of all the earth do justly? God, how can you do this? How can you destroy an entire city? How is that possible? And so he goes into a little dialogue with the Lord. Lord, if there are 50 men in the city, will you destroy it? What's the Lord's answer? No, of course not. Lord, if there's 40, will you destroy it? No. 30, 20, 10. No, no, no. We all know how the story ends. The city is destroyed. And here's what I want us to see. The answer is, of course, God would not destroy it if there were those that were righteous in the city. He is a good and just God. But he's also an infinite God, far beyond our imagination, and he already knew what he would find there. He already had it worked out. Justice would be executed. It would be carried forward because he is the Lord. And so... We can trust, then, to the Lord that justice is not my place. I do not have to carry it out for God. God is able to be trusted with it. So whatever comes into my life, wherever I'm wronged, wherever I'm hurt, I can trust it to the Lord. He will do it. He is faithful. Therefore, what God expects from us is to pray for our enemies and work for their salvation until they no longer have breath in their lungs. We are to love them with the supernatural, all-surpassing, unconditional love of God. This is what we're called to, church. And so only as we clearly see the limitless wrath of God contrasted with the infinite love of God do we understand the seriousness of the two bookend commands that are given in this passage. Verse 9 says this, Let love be genuine. Here's the, the bookend command, the beginning one. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And then skip down to 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. God's wrath, friends, is why we abhor evil and cling to what is good. But God's love 
is why we do not have to be overcome by evil, but can overcome evil with good. Jesus has done it for us. What we are called to do is renew our minds, love, and obey. Will you do that today? Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you now. Lord, and we acknowledge our inability to do this. God, we don't have it in and of ourselves to, to love you rightly, to love the other people that you've placed in our lives rightly, much less love our enemies rightly. But Lord, I pray that as we have reflected on your power and your goodness to us, God, that, that we would allow our hearts to see you perhaps for the very first time for who you really are, how good and kind and gracious you are, that your ways are right and true, that you never fail. And so, Lord, as we come to this time of response, Father, I pray that we would respond in submission and in obedience. God, that we would be willing to love our enemies, that we would be willing to die to ourselves to show a watching world who you are. Thank you that you love us. We ask these things in your name. Amen.